0: Uh, If anybody wants to guess the passage that we're in coming out of that song, uh, those of you who've grown up in church, you probably know what we're in. Ezekiel 34, all about dry bones. And uh, it's going to be a fun passage. Uh, Before we get into it, let me me just say, I love Sundays uh, where we have infant dedication or infant baptism. And I think um, not only because you get to see amazingly cool hats on kids, we may have a Cool Hat Sunday coming up. That, those are great. Um, but it, it tells us, and if you're new to Crossview, it tells you that... Um, We care deeply about the next generation. We want our kids, we want our students to grow up knowing and understanding and believing in the gospel and having it be something that transforms their lives. So if you're new around here, we want you to know that that as one of our core values that that we really work hard at being about. So Ezekiel 37, let me recap the last couple of weeks before we jump into it. I think these last two weeks... uh, maybe more than others on some level, were, were, were important conversations for us to have. A couple of weeks ago, we are in Isaiah 11. We talked about the idea of kings and kingdoms. It's not language we use a lot, but it's very important. Uh, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than anything else in the Gospels. And it needs to be something that we understand. It needs to be something that we can translate to our world, to our day-in and day-out life. And then last week, we talked about... Um, The idea of God's anger. We looked at Jeremiah 52 and we sort of told you leading into the message that it was like a bad country song where uh, the guy loses his car, loses his job, loses his house and to top it off his girlfriend walks away. That's what the passage felt like around God's anger. And uh, often when we think of God's anger, we think of God as Darth Vader in the sky, just waiting for us to do something wrong so that he can come with the right hook and knock us out. And what we realized last week is God's anger is not that. God's anger is in a healthy way, the image of a parent that when we choose to do wrong and when we consistently choose to do wrong, God's anger, God's wrath is leaving us to the consequences of our decisions. And if you're a parent, you get that, right? We understand what that means, but God is always the God, just like the story in the Gospels of the son that walks away. God is the God who stands on the back porch waiting for us to come back. Um, his wrath is not the end of the story. Love is always the end of the story. So I would encourage you, if you weren't around the last couple of weeks, we're in this year-long series, but the, these two, are, I think, were especially important. Uh, jump online. You can listen to those online. and It'll help you as we enter into more and more of these conversations. Ezekiel 37, before we start reading in the text, let me pray for us. God, um, we open your word. And God, we believe that these words point to the ultimate living word, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and that we, through that, through your Spirit working in us, that we would more faithfully follow you into the world around us. pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 37, we're going to be in verses 1 through 14, and it starts by saying this, but verse uh, chapter 36, by the way, to give you a little context to where we're at in Ezekiel, chapter 36 was a prophecy saying to Israel, who's in Babylonian exile, they're in 70 years of exile, That there is a prophecy saying, You will have a new spirit, new heart. Things will be restored one day. So there is this glimmer of hope, this expectation that maybe the kingdom, their land that they have, would come back one day. And now we come to verse 37, or chapter 37. The Lord took hold of me, and I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. This is a vision that we're going to see that's really interesting. It's a little bit, if last week was like a bad country song, this week is like The Walking Dead. Does anybody watch The Walking Dead? Like it's sort of death all around until we get a few verses in. Verse 2, he led me all around among the bones that covered the valley floor. So try and get this image in your mind that Ezekiel is transported to this valley. And in the valley, it's just covered with dead, dry bones. And the dry imagery is to get across to us. It was to get across to Ezekiel that they're really dead. There's not a question of whether these bones are dead or not. They're, They're like super, super dead. They were scattered everywhere across the ground, completely dried out. And if you can imagine Ezekiel walking into this, number one, you walk into this vision and you see this valley full of dry bones. Number one, you're like, what happened here? Something really, really bad happened here. And then his mind switches to another thing and he begins to think probably a couple of different things that not only is this shocking experience, completely what, what's going on, but he's a priest as well. So as a priest, you're not allowed to be in contact with anything dead. And he's wondering, okay, what is God bringing me into in this vision? And we come to verse 3. Such a great question. Then he asked, Son of man, can these bones become living again? So... God asks Ezekiel and says, do you think these bones that are really, really super, super dry, do you think they could actually live again? And understand in the Old Testament at this time, they didn't have an understanding of the afterlife that we have. They didn't fully understand that one day Jesus was right would rise bodily from the grave. And that would point to the ultimate resurrection of all things. They didn't have this full understanding of what life after death was all about. So when God asked him, can these bones be risen? Naturally, he's wondering, how do I answer this? If I say no, then I underestimate God, and that's not a good place to be. If I say yes, maybe I'm being a bit presumptuous. And so here's his answer. "O oh, sovereign Lord, I replied. You alone know the answer to that. we just say, well done, Ezekiel? Way to give the the political answer. So verse 4. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, and again, imagine yourself in this story. So now God is saying to you in the vision, hey, let's stop you and I talking, Ezekiel. Now you talk to the bones. Let's get really weird about this. Speak a prophetic message to the bones and say, dry bones. Listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm going to put breath into you and make you alive again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am Lord. There's a cool interaction that goes on through this text where Ezekiel doesn't completely get it, doesn't totally understand it, but yet there's this active obedience that's going on. I think is a good lesson for us. Verse 7. So I spoke this message, just as he told me. Suddenly as I spoke, there was a rattling noise all across the valley. The bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. Remember, Ezekiel's watching this. Then as I watched, muscles and flesh formed over the bones, then skin formed to cover their bodies. They still had no breath in them. In Ezekiel 37, he speaks and it comes to life, which in this time, there was mad, I mean, this is sort of feels magical right and in this time there was magic that was looked up to in that day and it was usually through incantations or you would have to do something to make something magical happen and in the text which we are going to see it actually reminds us of Genesis 1 and 2 in the text it's simply through the word of God that life happens that these bones come back to life verse 9 then he said to me speak a prophetic message to the wind son of man Speak a prophetic message and say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, Come, O breath from the four winds. Breathe into these dead bodies so that they may live again. In the Old Testament, the same Hebrew word is for spirit and breath. And this breath is from God and it enters in and it brings life. And we understand on this side of God's story in the New Testament, we understand what that reminds us of, that when we put our faith in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. It's one of those weird but amazing Christian realities. And the life that comes through forgiveness of sins, through putting our trust and hope in Jesus Christ. Genesis 2 verse 7 says this. The Lord God formed a man. He made him out of the dust of the ground. God breathed the breath of life into him. And the man became a living person. This story for Old Testament Israel, for Ezekiel, would have reminded them of the creation story. Like, this is creating again. This is new creation. This is life happening out of something that apparently seems to be dead. Verse 10. So I spoke the message he commanded me. And breath came into their bodies. They all came to life and stood on their feet a great army. Now verses 11 through 14, what we're going to find is an explanation of what this whole vision, this whole prophecy is all about. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying we have become old, dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. And remember, again, they've been taken over by Babylon. They're out of their land. They're in Babylonian exile. They're nowhere near their land. They're servants and slaves. And they naturally think that all hope is gone. We looked at this image the last couple of weeks in, the, in the, some of the texts we were in, this idea of this stump that has been cut down. There's no life. There's no hope. And the prophecy that we keep hearing is from God to Israel, even though I've judged you in this way, I've left you to the consequences of what you have chosen, something will live again out of what seems hopeless. Verse 12. Therefore prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people. I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. When this happens, O my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you, you will live again and return home to your land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has spoken. And so it's this simple explanation of saying, here's what the story is about. Everything seems hopeless but I will make things right again. And if in the Old Testament, naturally, they were thinking right away. They weren't thinking the Jesus that we know now in the New Testament, but they were thinking right away that we will be freed from this oppression. We will be freed from this exile that we're in. And we know on this side of the story, and especially if you read the rest of this chapter, that it's also pointing ultimately towards Jesus Christ without question. The ultimate life, ultimate resurrection, ultimate recreation of all things only happens through what Jesus did in his resurrecting. But this text, it's a particular part of Israel's story. 2,500 years ago, this text happened. And it was talking to Israel in Babylonian exile. They're in a place where God had put them there in judgment, 70 years of exile. Doesn't seem like a lot, but if you think about it, that's a lot, right? Right? 70 years of not being where they wanted to be, being slaves, and naturally they're wondering, does our God really exist? Is our God greater than the Babylonian kings? Is our God greater than the Babylonian gods? It seems like our God has actually failed us. It seems like all hope is completely gone. They were slaves, they're exiled, nothing going on. God is failed And if we're honest... Ezekiel's vision invites us to ask some similar questions. When we feel like death is all around us, when we feel like we're in the valley, when we feel like we're in a desert, who do we turn to? How do we process the story of God in that? Because it's often in the desert where we most faithfully encounter God. Right now we're in the season of Lent, the 40, 40 days leading up to Easter. Easter. And the 40 days is all about the story of Jesus in the wilderness, where he is out there, where things are dry, things are hopeless, no food. What are you going to do? And what does Jesus do in the wilderness? Time and time and time again, he's just simply communing with God. I know where I'm going to go. I know the death I'm going to experience. Things seem hopeless. I have no food. And it says that he communes with God for 40 days. So what I want to do in these closing couple of minutes is just invite us, if this text ultimately points towards Jesus Christ, towards the ultimate resurrection, invite us into three questions. They're going to sit up on the screen, and I would encourage you to take these with you. These are questions, I think, in different times of life. When we're in those places where things seem hopeless, they can lead us, not not always out of the dry places, not always out of the hopeless places, but they can lead us towards the right questions so that we can experience life even when it seems like death is all around us. So the first one is this. Real simply, where are the dry bones in your life? Where are the dry bones in your life? Where do things seem dead? Where do things seem hopeless? Where do you feel scarred? Where do you feel hurt? Where do you feel empty? It can be really big things. This last week, probably a number of us had friends up in the cities who lost jobs with Target. Can you imagine that? And for some, it's not only losing jobs, it's right away wondering how are we going to meet our mortgage next month. That's a dry place. Things seem hopeless. Things seem like they, they aren't going to come around and come together. Maybe it's relational stuff. Maybe you're overworked. Maybe it's something around health. And it can be small and it can be big. It's the big ones that often grab us the most. I remember about five or six years ago having one of those life experiences where these two big issues had sort of come together in my life and I was at one of those points of like, things seem out of control, they seem hopeless, I don't know what to do. And we often, we all end up in those places at times. Where it's hopeless, it's death, and we tend to ask the question, where is God? Where is God? Where is God in the middle of us, middle of this? And hopefully this leads us into the second question. This is probably the more challenging one where we got it. We have to get a little introspective. But the question is this, how is this dryness? How are these places of hopelessness, however you want to phrase it, how are they taking their toll? How are they taking their toll? Another way you could say it is, where do you tend to medicate and cover the problem instead of really dealing with it? Or where do you want to quit? Where in your life right now is it so painful that what, how it's taking its toll is you just want to be done? Yesterday, my wife convinced me again to run a half marathon. And it was up in St. Paul. And um, I'm not a runner. I don't like running. It is, it is God's judgment on my life. And um, mile 10 up in St. Paul, you're coming back. And there's a hill that feels like lookout drive. Um. And you're about halfway up it. And literally in my mind I'm thinking, I could just quit. Like, seriously, there's a walking path next to the road. I could just be done. Walk to the side, be done. No one's going to know the better. I'll rip the number off. It'll be okay. Okay. But then you realize that if I quit, that I I am not going to be the person, become, experience what I need to become on this journey. And I think that's part of what we're talking about here. We're the places where you want to quit, you want to medicate, you don't want to deal with it. As a pastor, I get to see a lot of these, not only in my life, but I get to have many of them come through my office. One that comes through on a fairly consistent basis is a marriage that's in a place, has been in a place of pain and turmoil, and it feels like it's dead, and it's been that place for 10 years. We're sleeping in separate bedrooms, things don't feel like they're right, and often I, I sit down with, with a couple in that place and I wonder, how do we let a relationship that we know is beginning to experience death actually get to the point where it just might be dead? And where it takes its toll is, if you've been there, the facade of trying to pretend like everything's okay, right? In our friendship groups, at the school, wherever it is, we go out and we pretend like we're married, and then we go home and things seem dead. By the way, I rarely ever think a marriage is dead. What about the health thing that you just got? The diagnosis that you had no idea was coming. The question becomes, the toll is, how are you dealing with it? How are you processing whatever that journey that you are on now? I've had a few funerals here in the last number of weeks. I'm always reminded in the journey of a funeral that it's rarely what happens leading up to the funeral. It's the people around that person that died after. Now you really feel like you're experiencing death. That person's not around, and... The toll is the journey that we enter into after the fact. Maybe you're just overworked. And you're overworked and now you're becoming short with your kid, short with your spouse. We tend... We tend to focus on medicating or wanting to quit or not wanting to be in the midst of it instead of naming what the issue is that is bringing death into our lives and trying to deal with it well. And that brings us to this third question, where do you find life? When you feel like you're in the valley of dry bones, where do you find life? And I think just like Israel, just like Israel, sometimes by our own volition and sometimes we're forced into it that often we feel like we're in exile, these dry places. And the reality, it's much more about how we deal with it and where we find life that really matters. Remember what I said before, for the Jews in the Old Testament, they didn't have this fully understood form of an afterlife. For them, when it talked about resurrecting, they were just hoping to get back to the promised land, back to what was theirs. On this side of it, as we understand what Jesus did in his death and his bodily resurrection, we begin to understand what new creation and afterlife and ultimate life and eternity really looks like. And we understand, when we say, where do we turn for life? That one person alone produced true life. One person alone walked the suffering to the cross. I'm in a short-term study with a group of people on Monday nights, and we're going through this book by Tim Keller called A Reason for God. And in talking about suffering, he says in this book, he says, the ultimate way that Jesus understands and talks about and enters into suffering is that the ultimate suffering actually happened in the death on the cross when God the Father and God the Son were separated for three days. That was worse than any lashes that came across his back. That was worse than any crown of thorns that was put put upon his head. That God the Father and God the Son, who had eternally been together, were separated. And so when we talk about where do we turn to life for life, we turn to the one who endured such pain, such suffering, such separation, that when we turn there, he knows fully where our dry and dark and hopeless places are. And wants to give us life. It's not always the easy answer of how do you get out of the situation you're in, but God wants to give you life in the middle of whatever you're going through. It's always the invitation of God. It's always the invitation of God. It's interesting, right before Jesus goes to the cross, seems as though he knows the journey he's going to walk. Where does he go? To the garden. Just to talk, talk to God, right? Okay, I know what's coming, or at least I have a sense of what's coming. Whatever you want to say about that. I, I, I'm going to a dark place. So Jesus goes to the garden to commune with God. And I wonder if the way in which we deal with those places of hopelessness, those dark places in our life, is to follow the example of Jesus. I might have told you before, I remember when I, when I was in that really tough place of life five or six years ago, and I'm not much of a, a, a crier at all. You could ask my wife. Um, that Marley movie where the dog dies is one of the few times I've cried. And, uh, but I remember driving home one day, and it was weighing so heavenly, heavily on me, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if God was there in the middle of it. But I just had this overwhelming sense of a need to cry out to God in the midst of it pulled over to the side of the road, sobbing like a little baby, and just said, God, I don't get it. I don't like it. I feel like you probably have failed me. But in the midst of it, I also know I need you. I know the only way that I will walk through this valley that feels like the shadow of death is to cry out to you. And I tend to think that one of the most simple things that we forget when we're in that place is just to cry out to God. No matter where you are, no matter what your story is, no matter what you think of God, no matter what you're going through, God so badly wants to hear from you. God so badly wants to be invited in to whatever that valley is that you're in right now. Would you close your eyes, bow your heads. In closing, I'm gonna read Psalm 23. David's in this dark, tough place. Seems like everything is turned against him. And here's what he says. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Father, God, I pray that you would remind us when we're in these places where it feels like death is all around us, that you are the God of life. And like David, you simply want us to turn to you, to invite you in. And God, would your presence be exactly what is needed for each person in this room this morning? For some, it's in the place of crying out, maybe for the first time, for putting their faith in you. That's the dry and dark place, the sin that needs forgiven, the pain that needs to be addressed. God, would they cry out for faith? And for the rest of us, God, I pray that we would move past shame and pride and whatever is in the way invite you into the darkness, invite you into the death, and would you bring life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit, I pray. Amen.